I'm Trisha Johnson, and this is Aspen Ideas To Go. For his latest book, author Garrett Graff studied what would happen if the United States was hit with a nuclear attack. During the Cold War, the government refined a set of doomsday plans, giving every federal agency a post-apocalyptic role. The National Park Service was going to be the agency that was running the refugee camps because the expectation was that national parkland would be largely untouched. And so you would flee out of your devastated urban centers into, you know, Red Rocks and Yosemite and all of these beautiful wildernesses. While citizens headed for the woods, the nation's leaders would be whisked away to mountain bunkers where they would continue to operate the country and eventually rebuild it. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Graf's book, Raven Rock, provides a window into the history of how and why the U.S. government drew up these doomsday plans. In the 1940s and 50s, three bunkers were built, including a massive one in a hollowed-out mountain in Colorado and two more closer to the capital. One was called Raven Rock. Today, the nation's network of bunkers has grown, and a third generation of doomsday planners are hard at work. The bunkers are staffed 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and ready at a moment's notice to house top government officials. The potential for disaster is eerily at hand. North Korea has launched a missile capable of striking anywhere in the U.S., and President Trump has said he stands ready to totally destroy North Korea. The infamous doomsday clock is set at two and a half minutes to midnight. So how realistic is it that the government's doomsday plans will go into effect? And what does that mean for you and me? Garrett Graff is an award-winning journalist who has spent nearly a decade covering national security. He's the executive director of the Aspen Institute Cybersecurity and Technology Program. Peter Fever, a political science professor at Duke, sits down with Graf. Here's Fever. Why don't we start off just, uh, the, let me read the full title because it's a disturbing title. Raven Rock, full colon, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself, dash, dash, while the rest of us die. And that's a vivid title. Tell us how you came up with that title and, and what's the message you're trying to send with that title. So th this is the story of the U.S. government's what are known as continuity of government plans, which are the secret plans put into place uh, during the, the years since the end of World War II uh, that would have dealt with both how the U.S. would have responded to a, a nuclear attack on the United States or other sort of uh, large-scale catastrophe, both in the minutes and hours uh, as that attack unfolded, but then also how the U.S. would begin to rebuild afterwards um, and sort of what type of America and what, uh, what would happen to the country in the wake of a devastating attack like that. Raven Rock, the title of the book, is one of the three major government bunkers that were built in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, Raven Rock is the bunker in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, sort of just over the Pennsylvania line from Camp David in Maryland, that would have served, would still serve today, as the uh, alternate Pentagon in the event that the, the Pentagon was lost uh, to some sort of catastrophic attack. And it 
it and then Mount Weather, which is in Berryville, Virginia, about 80 minutes west of Washington, uh, which is where the president and the cabinet would have gone. And then NORAD here, uh, actually not far from where we are in Colorado Springs inside Cheyenne Mountain, uh, are, are these massive hollowed out mountains. I mean, literally a hollowed out mountain with a freestanding small city inside. Um, you know, freestanding three-story buildings, uh, everything that you would need uh, and expect in a small city. Uh, their own fire departments, police departments, uh, dining facilities, uh, medical facilities. The uh, NORAD bunker here uh, actually has a subway. It is the world's most secure fast food franchise. Um, the, the subway restaurant, not a <laughs> underground train. And, and it was sort of a topic that uh, has not been, uh, and you, you know sort of as, as someone uh, who uh, examines history as well, Peter, like uh, this has not been a topic that actually a lot of people have paid attention to over the years. Um, but when I was covering national security in Washington, uh, it was something that I sort of bumped up against mm -hmm. uh, on a regular basis. I, I mean, you know, we talked to someone who had been evacuated on 9-11 to one of these facilities or talked to someone who was part of these plans under the uh, Bush and Obama years. Uh, and then for one story I was working on, I actually got to fly with the first helicopter squadron uh, of the US Air Force, which is based at Andrews Air Force Base and practices in the skies over Washington every single day. If you are in Washington, you can look up, see these blue and gold helicopters uh, flying around. And what they're doing is practicing for Armageddon, practicing to evacuate the nation's leaders to these mountain bunkers. Uh, and they have been used exactly once. Uh, on September 11th when they evacuated the congressional leadership from the west lawn of the Capitol uh, out to Mount Weather, the bunker in Berryville. But what got me really interested in this topic was uh, I was working at Washingtonian Magazine before I went to Politico, uh, and one of my colleagues came in one morning with a government ID badge that he had found on the floor of a metro parking garage, the subway system in DC. And it was clearly a US intelligence officer's ID badge. And he brought it in to me, uh, my colleague brought it in and said, uh, you know, you cover this stuff, you can figure out how to get this ID back to this guy. Uh, and so I turn over the ID uh, and I'm looking for sort of some sort of instructions of like if found call, you know, 1-800-US-INTEL, uh, and uh, there actually turn out to be these driving directions on the back of this ID badge. And uh, I can sort of tell that these driving directions lead out into West Virginia, so I get on Google so let Maps. Me, let me interrupt you yeah. there just for a second, because you've told, you tell the story in the book. You don't report any moral qualms about what you're about to relate to us. Now, no, I shouldn't be doing this. This is naughty. No, no, no. I, I thought this was fascinating. Uh, it, it, was, it was this guy's fault for losing his ID on the, on the metro. Um, That's a report. So yes. he, uh, uh, so I get on Google Satellite, Google Maps, and follow this driving directions out into Rocket Center, West Virginia, uh, where I can see this road go up a mountain, there's a chain link fence, a guard shack, 
and then about 100 yards further down the road, this huge set of concrete bunker doors, and then the road just disappears into the mountain. And it's a facility that didn't exist on any map. Uh, it was something I had never heard of. And it was, and I was like, wow, like this is part of these post 9-11 plans as they have been expanded and updated since September 11th. Like this is one of the new secret facilities that the US government would retreat to in the event of uh, you know, some sort of catastrophic attack on Washington. And it made me in interested in sort of going back and trying to figure out what the history of these plans were. Now, the, you didn't get to the last part of your title, and, but the, the book traces one of its themes, I think, is the efforts to protect the government, or at least the functioning of the government. We'll get into what that, the distinction mm -hmm. there might be between those. And the gradual uh, disillusionment of these same planners with civil defense, the idea yep. that you could ever protect the rest of civilian society. So talk a little bit about that disconnect, because I think that's, it's foreshadowed in your title, but it comes out in yeah. the book. Um, so it, as, as, you're, as you're alluding, like one of the things that ended up being really interesting in this is the arc of how these plans evolved since the end of, the, uh, end of World War II. And the idea that, that sort of lost to us now from where we sit today, that for the 40s and early 50s, like the, there was the idea that atomic war could actually be a survivable thing. Um, you would have Soviet bombers coming into the United States, so you would have eight, 10, 12 hours worth of warning. Uh, the Soviets didn't have that many bombs. The bombs weren't that powerful. So yeah, like we might lose a dozen cities, we might lose a couple dozen cities, but that nuclear war would not be anything close to sort of the global life-ending Armageddon that it, it was by the end of the Cold War. And so the government started out in the 40s and 50s with these plans that really hoped to see the vast majority of the American civilian population live. Um, and uh, we have these massive civil defense exercises in the 1950s, sort of uh, people of a certain generation, you know, probably remember the duck and cover drills of elementary school and Bert the Turtle, uh, you know, teaching you that if you just crouch under your desk, you're going to be totally safe <laughs> from nuclear war. And that what ends up happening is sort of three technological advances. The, uh, we go from bombers to missiles. So you go from eight, 10, 12 hours worth of warning to 15 to 20 minutes worth of, uh, 15 to 30 minutes worth of warning. Uh, you go from atomic bombs, nuclear bombs, to thermonuclear bombs, to hydrogen bombs. And then you also just have a lot more of them. And you're not talking about a few dozen or a few score or even a few hundred uh, nuclear weapons anymore, I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands. And so oh, certainly by the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s, you really see the government's hopes and ambitions for the civilian population shrink to what it sort of basically is, uh, remains today, which is we're all on our own and a small number of senior U.S. government officials are going to be evacuated by helicopter to mountain bunkers.
You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, or your favorite player. Check out past shows that feature talks from Michelle Obama, David Brooks, Thomas Friedman, and many others. And when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Now back to today's conversation. Here's Peter Fever. You, uh, at, in one of the um, chapters, you talk about the gun thy neighbor uh, problem, which they wrestled with. Was their thinking about civil defense? Could you just share yeah. what that is? What's gun thy neighbor? Yeah. So uh, part of this era from the you know the 40s, 50s, and uh, early to mid 60s is you have this fallout shelter craze in the United States. We should see um, how many people, some, we have people of a certain age here. Did any of you actually had a fallout shelter back in the day? Yeah, okay, a couple. They might uh, still have them for all yeah. you know. <laughs> I was gonna say, well, so that's a separate question, is who has fallout shelters today? Um, you know, there was this real push to have Americans build fallout shelters um, and you know convert your basements to dig them into the backyards, uh, you know stock them with two or three weeks worth of food and water, and and there was sort of something like a fallout shelter craze during a few moments in the 1950s and, and 1960s where uh, there was sort of a pop culture fascination with shelter living, and the uh, the U.S. government ran these like large scale fallout shelter exercises with. California prisoners, where for every day that uh, prisoners in California were willing to live in a fallout shelter, they got a day off of their jail sentence. And there was a Florida couple that's uh, at the uh, sponsorship of Bomb Shelters, Inc., uh, spent their two-week honeymoon in a fallout shelter uh, in Florida. And that there was sort of this uh, real push to encourage people to take some ownership over their own, uh, uh, over their own survival, and that became very complicated for some sort of political philosophical reasons. Uh, in part because uh, there were huge uh, racial and socio-economic inequalities sort of built into the idea of having a backyard fallout shelter. I mean, you were talking about people who live in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, people who live in the suburbs in the north, because a lot of homes in the south don't have fallout shelters, or uh, don't have basements. And uh, the government began to sort of push to build their own fallout shelters. And during the Kennedy years, uh, there was a massive uh, effort to expand uh, the, the sort of orange and brown signs that you sort of still see aging on like post offices and elementary schools for fallout shelters. Uh, and the US Department of Agriculture developed this uh, survival biscuit uh, that uh, was specially formulated to have all of the uh, nu nutrients you would need to live on the biscuit for two, uh, two or three weeks in one of these fallout shelters. And they manufactured 160 million tons of these with Nabisco and put them in tins and put them in the fallout shelter. And when you got to the fallout shelter, you were going to be given six of them a day. Uh, they, each, each cracker had 125 calories in it. And the instruction manual that came with these crackers 
suggested that since there's not actually a lot to do in a fallout shelter, that you should each uh, eat each individual cracker individually so that you could enjoy six meals a day <laughs> of 125 calories a piece uh, to occupy your time through the day. Um, and part of this, uh, sort of circling back to the specific part of your question, was this very uh, fraught philosophical debate in the early 1960s over to what extent did you have the right to defend your own fallout shelter from your neighbors. And this became sort of a, a, a specific uh, debate in, in suburban communities of, you know, if there's only one fallout shelter on your block, uh, you know, literally could you, sh you know, shoot your neighbors to keep them from trying to storm your fallout shelter in the event of a nuclear war. But then it became sort of a community by community thing. Um, and you saw, uh, community civil defense leaders like ringing Los Angeles recommend that homeowners, uh, you know, arm themselves uh, to stop the fleeing hordes of Los Angeles residents, uh, you know, who would flee east uh, through the suburbs. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it sort of became this very uh, fraught, uh, you know, theological debate. Um, I mean, you know, Catholic priests doing sermons about it from the pulpit uh, in the early 1960s. And I think he concluded, the, the Jesuit priest concluded, you could shoot your neighbor because you had a higher obligation to those who depend on you. But it, yeah. it's an interesting uh, uh, conundrum. Well, basically, you show that the government never solved that piece of it, preserving civilian society, and basically declared too hard wash their hands up. Even in the revival of the Cold War in the Reagan era, there wasn't a corresponding revival of interest in civil defense. But on the other side of the coin, continuity of government and continuity of operations, government worked that for, and still is working that today. Yep. So they, whether they cracked that code, whether they solved it, that's what we're going to talk about. But um, they did w never give up on that. So talk about the difference between continuity of government and continuity of operations, and and maybe uh, you know what some early efforts to to preserve these. Yeah. So part of this is uh, thinking through uh, an evolution of the presidency that we now take very much for granted, which is as late as the 1930s and early 1940s, it didn't particularly matter where the president of the United States was on any given day. Um, you know, you just weren't dealing with that many decisions that required sort of instantaneous, timely response. Uh, when FDR in 1935 was driving back from the dedication of the Hoover Dam, his motorcade got lost in the canyons uh, outside Las Vegas, and he just disappeared for the entire afternoon. And no one knew where the president was, when he might show up, where he might show up, uh, or certainly how to get, uh, get in contact with him at all. Uh, Wait, this wasn't an Area 51 story where he ends uh, no, up... No, uh, Area 51's uh, north. Okay, yeah. okay. I thought he ended up with yeah. E.T. or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and as late as 1945, when Harry Truman takes over as vice president, 
the vice president of the United States received no Secret Service protection. Mm -hmm. The vice president just sort of wandered around Washington by himself over the course of the day. Uh, and sort of as long as you could get in touch with the vice president, you know, that afternoon or the next morning, like that was sort of all you really needed the vice president. Uh, and then, of course, with the arrival of nuclear weapons, you began to see the, the decision-making windows collapse. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to forget today that all of these things that we sort of think of as the signs of the imperial majestic modern presidency, you know, Air Force One, Marine One, the armored motorcades, are effectively really fancy toys to ensure that the President of the United States can launch nuclear weapons wherever he is at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And that even, in fact, Air Force One itself, the call sign, was an invention of the Cold War, of the nuclear age, to delineate whether the President of the United States is on board a specific aircraft at a specific moment. Because before then, before Eisenhower adopted the Air Force One call sign, there was no way to tell uh, for air traffic control purposes where the president was in the sky at any given moment. Mm -hmm. This has you know, fundamentally reshaped the presidency in part uh, in ways that we don't really think that much about. Where you have the presidency today isn't just the person that we elect on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Uh, the presidency is actually an entity that encompasses several hundred people in the United States to ensure that the, there is no vacuum of leadership uh, in the United States at any given time. And so you have not just the president, the vice president, the speaker of the house, the president pro tem of the Senate, and all of the cabinet officials, but each of those cabinet officials has their own line of succession that's 15, 20, 25 people long. And so in the event of a catastrophic attack today, you have this like very odd assortment of uh, up until that moment relatively anonymous government officials who would suddenly announce themselves as the leaders of the country. Um, people including the UN ambassador, the highest ranking uh, State Department official outside of Washington, but then on down through the ambassadors of you know, the UK, Japan, uh, uh, India and, and on down, the top, uh, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, the top federal prosecutor in Chicago. Um, the what was And what was going to be his or her assignment? If, uh, well, so he would be attorney general. Right. Uh, uh, um, and the, you have the, uh, uh, the director of the Savannah River Operations Center for the Department of Energy would take over as the Secretary of Energy uh, in the event of an attack on Washington. And their obscurity was actually not a bug, but a feature, right? Yeah, right. You, they, you, they were outside of Washington, far right. from any real threat, uh, and that they you know, would sort of step in to lead the nation in the event of a, a catastrophic attack. One of the things I love about your book is the way you show how it, th these efforts to design the system, really what um, Herman Kahn called thinking the unthinkable, as you, you, you puzzle your way through this, they're running into either technological hurdles that have to be solved, or they're running into societal hurdles that intersected in different ways, or even just human psychological hurdles. Yeah. And I, I'm going to push you on a couple of those. So tell the story of 
this is one of the societal ones I, I enjoy is that that when they discovered that the uh, the suburb that they wanted to move uh, in in Vietnam uh, in Virginia uh, had a race challenge and they were going to move a whole lot of government employees who were African Americans. Can, can you tell that yeah. story? So. Uh, I, I've mentioned sort of the three big bunkers, Raven Rock, Mount Weather, and NORAD. Um, but at the peak of the Cold War, there were more than 100 of these bunkers and relocation centers uh, scattered around the country, most of them in this arc sort of west of Washington, stretching from Pennsylvania down to North Carolina. Uh, but then also bunkers scattered over the rest of the country as well. FEMA, uh, which is the agency that runs these plans, uh, built this series of regional command centers mm -hmm. in places like Denton, Texas, Maynard, Massachusetts. And the idea was that the government, the federal government would sort of split apart into eight regional governments run from these bunkers uh, around the country before the federal government could reconstitute itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but of these bunkers in this relocation arc, you know, they, they spanned from you know, real hollowed out mountains like Raven Rock and Mount Weather to the State Department set up a uh, very bucolic uh, relocation facility on a cattle farm uh, in Front Royal, Virginia, uh, where hundreds of their personnel would flock to, you know, these rolling hills and beautiful farmhouses and farm buildings where the State Department would, would be run. The uh, Department of Justice would relocate to a post office in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And then uh, the Federal Reserve uh, built a bunker in Mount Pony, Virginia, uh, which is uh, just outside Richmond, that had room for the Fed chair, for the Board of Governors, uh, and then also had $4 billion in cash uh, locked away in the vaults, which was the amount of money that the government believed it would be necessary uh, to carry the country's economy for the 18 months before the Bureau of Engraving and Printing could begin reprinting currency. You got to tell the story. What what denomination? <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, as Peter was sort of beginning to say, part of what makes these plans so funny in retrospect is the way that all of these like very careful black and white written down highly organized plans intersect with like the normal uh, government decision making process. Okay. So the Federal Reserve uh, in 1976 introduced, uh, reintroduced the $2 bill, uh, and the Thomas Jefferson $2 bill, which uh, you still sort of see you know, occasionally today. Turns out no one in America wanted a $2 bill. And so they had billions of dollars of these bills printed uh, that no one wanted. And so they shrink-wrapped them and put them in this vault in Mount Pony, Virginia, to be the post-apocalypse currency, figuring that after nuclear war, Americans would be much less choosy exactly. about what their currency was going to be. It could have been a $3 bill, which would have um, been worse. So, and, yeah. and, and, and it's just sort of funny to see the way that these plans sort of intersect with like mm -hmm. these things you know, end up causing long-term traditions. The reason uh, that the Marines fly the president and not the Air Force. Uh, so January, or sorry, July 1956, uh, Dwight Eisenhower during one of these drills is evacuated from Washington by limousine. 
uh, and ends up literally stuck behind a pig truck on the road going up to Camp David. Uh, and the Secret Service says, you know, I'm not sure we should rely on the roads to get the president out. So July 1957 rolls around. They want to put the president in a, uh, uh, in, in a helicopter for the first time. The Air Force goes out and buys two new helicopters uh, to be the presidential helicopters. Uh, this is the late 1950s. They buy the plexiglass bubble helicopters that you remember from the opening scenes of MASH. Any of you who have ever been in Washington in July, uh, it's hot in July in Washington. So you put President Eisenhower in a plexiglass bubble in July in Washington for a 90-minute flight up to Camp David, and you have a very hot, very sweaty and very angry Dwight Eisenhower who gets off the helicopter in Camp David. All of the White House staff, meanwhile, had flown on the much larger marine transport helicopters uh, and were standing there waiting to greet the president <laughs> when he arrives at Camp David. Cool, calm, and collected. Uh, cool, calm, and collected. And Dwight Eisenhower says, I'm never getting on that <laughs> helicopter again. So. The Marines now fly the President of the United States because they had air-conditioned helicopters uh, in 1957. So, and just the, I'll, I'll just close the loop, the, uh, it was Front Royal where they, one, one of these relocation sites where they wrote back and said, we're not sure this will work because there's a race oh, issue, yes, a race sorry, issue uh, in Front uh, Royal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the Justice Department uh, and the State Department were trying to relocate to uh, relocate out to Front Royal as part of these exercises. And the thing that they ran into, you know, again, this is 50s uh, Virginia, uh, was the Attorney General's chauffeur. Uh, there was no hotel uh, that would let him stay. Uh, overnight during the emergency evacuation exercises in sort of Jim Crow, Virginia in the 1950s. And so uh, the FBI ended up basically going out and uh, doing background checks on a couple of hotel uh, uh, proprietors and then approaching them and sort of uh, requisitioning the hotel in the event of an emergency because they were deeply concerned that they wouldn't actually be able to house their personnel uh, outside at these relocation sites. Today's show, The U.S. Government's Doomsday Plans, features Duke political science professor Peter Fever and author Garrett Graff. Graff is executive director of the Aspen Institute Cybersecurity and Technology Program, which aims to create a safe and secure online environment. While the world is a better place because of the rapid pace of innovation, Graff believes we need stronger solutions to keep pace with digital threats. Discover more about the program on aspeninstitute.org. Here's Peter Fever. So another theme is the human psychological dimension of the government employees who are told that they'll be uh, relocated or, or preserved in some way, and they're having to practice this, knowing that their loved ones, their family, will not. Yeah. 
the president and his family could be saved, but not the, you know, the families of the lower le level things. So uh, speak, uh, speak to that, and this is my request to you. Tell the, you have to tell the story about Eisenhower's uh, yes. uh, yeah. team going off and yeah. what the, the, the friction that that caused. Yeah. So, so uh, part of this is you know, these plans, while they were uh, in, in effect during the Cold War, were some of the nation's most uh, secret uh, secret plans. Uh, I mean, people working in adjacent offices might not even realize, uh, you know, who was involved and who wasn't. Um, and I tell the story in the book of uh, George Stephanopoulos uh, when he was White House communications director. Aaron Sorkin, uh, the director who uh, was doing research at that point for what became the American president in the West Wing, uh, sitting down, meeting with George Stephanopoulos, and Stephanopoulos shows him what Sorkin thinks is a bus pass, but actually turns out to be Stephanopoulos's get out of nuclear war free card. Um, and he incorporates this into a West Wing episode, which some of you might remember, where uh, Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff, gets one of these cards from the National Security Council and sort of walks around during the day with guilt about whether he's going to survive nuclear war or not. Well, they're filming this episode, and Dee Dee Myers, who was the White House press secretary with Stephanopoulos and was the set consultant for The West Wing, you know, pulls Aaron aside at the beginning of the episode and says, you know, Aaron, I think this is all sort of hokey. Like, these cards don't actually exist. Uh, and like, this isn't actually how these things work. Uh, and Sorkin realizes that, like, Dee Dee Myers, who, like, worked in the office next to George Stephanopoulos in the White House, never realized that her colleague was going to be saved, and she wasn't. Um, and that this, uh, this sort of thread of human psychology permeates the entire planning of this, uh, where... In the literal first exercise, uh, the first widespread uh, government exercise, Operation Alert 1954, uh, Eisenhower's uh, cabinet evacuates to Mount Weather uh, with Eisenhower. Uh, they bring all of their secretaries, and the wives of all of the cabinet uh, sit home and play rummy for the afternoon in what the newspaper at the time described as a very chilly atmosphere <laughs> as they realized that none of them were going to be saved while their husbands and their secretaries uh, went off to Mount Weather. Well, this is true throughout the plans. Uh, Earl Warren, when he becomes Chief Justice, uh, someone from the, the forerunner of FEMA comes over, meets with him, uh, hands him his pass to Mount Weather, and he looks at it and he says, I only see one pass here. Where's the pass for Mrs. Warren? And they, uh, the emergency planning official says, well, you know, Mr. Chief Justice, you have to understand you are one of the most important people in the United States. And the Chief Justice you know, hands the pass back and says, well, good news, you've got room for more important people in your bunker now. <laughs> and makes a decision that he was never going to evacuate if he couldn't bring his, his wife. And so he and, would have just disappeared. Well, uh, you, and you report uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis when it didn't seem quite so much like a 
uh, exercise, it, it, like, like it might be the real thing, you report at least one uh, State Department official who says, I, this is crazy. I, there's no way I'm going to yep. go without, uh, without my family. And, and so he at least just balked. Um, yep. and, and this is still true. I, um, I, I knew someone who was part of these plans during the Obama years. Mm -hmm. um, there was a designated helicopter that would have dropped out of the sky wherever he was in the country, found him and evacuated him. Uh, and he had two young daughters, and he said to me, you know, if anyone thinks that if that helicopter lands on my daughter's soccer field on a Saturday morning, that I am just going to wave goodbye to them and hop on the helicopter and disappear, uh, like, they're crazy. Like, this is, this is still a problem in these plans. Um, but, it, you know, what, what's interesting and, ch and challenging about thinking through this is that's probably sort of necessary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, the, the goal was never for this to be the creation of a, you know, bunker elite whose families would all be swept up and survive. You know, the, the goal of this was at its core just to preserve the functioning of the U.S. government. So another theme throughout the book is the implicit question, would this have worked if the balloon ever went up and we had to to test it. Uh, we came pretty close in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but at least as you tell it, the, the, the first time this was tested in a real live attack mode was 9-11. So based on your reporting and what you write in the book, how well did the system perform in the 9-11 day? Uh, it performed incredibly poorly on 9-11 uh, for entirely foreseeable reasons. Um, and reasons that the planners have struggled with since the first iterations of these plans. Uh, one of the key reasons being, you know, on 9-11, this was the first time that we had ever tried to evacuate government leaders at a mass level. Uh, and that part worked. Um, you know, we got President Bush in Air Force One in Sarasota, Florida, got him up into the sky where he was safe. Uh, Tell the story of the takeoff. Um, it, well, so they, uh, uh, it, it's actually a really interesting moment, uh, sort of, uh, when you look at this from the role of the Secret Service and the military on 9 11. Uh, because what, uh, I'll digress here for a second and then circle back. It, you know, President Bush received an enormous amount of criticism on 9 11 for being out of touch. Uh, for the day. I mean, we sort of, we remember Rudy Giuliani like marching right down there to ground zero. This is what a leader looks like. And President Bush is largely absent from that day until he lands at the White House at the end of the day. Well, the way that the Secret Service and the military saw that uh, unfold at the beginning was uh, there were sort of a couple of key moments that actually really scared them, um, where the New York attacks, you know, were, were tragic, but not, they didn't think there was any threat against the president. Then you have the attack on the Pentagon, and suddenly this becomes a, an attack on command centers. The first way, the first moment, though, that Flight 93, the crash of Flight 93 is reported, is that there's a plane down near Camp David which is technically and geographically true, that Flight 93 in Shanksville crashed near Camp David. It was not targeting Camp David, 
But the way that the US government and the US military ingested that information was that someone was trying to attack Camp David. And that, that, uh, that instantly sort of changed the thinking for the president uh, and the military and the Secret Service around him, that now there, is, there are actually threat vectors against the president now. And so they put uh, the president on Air Force One in Sarasota and take off for the first and only time using a classified, uh, basically, rocket launch system that Air Force One has that allows it to take off uh, you know, near vertically to get above the surface-to-air missile threat and then sort of heads out off into the Gulf of Mexico. The challenge with that, though, is you can keep the president secure, but you can't keep him in communication. And so you know, the moment that we have him in this steel tube eight miles above the Earth in, over the Gulf of Mexico, he's absent from his role as leader of the country. Um, and that was sort of true uh, throughout the day. Donald Rumsfeld, uh, as you might remember, actually, when the Pentagon was hit, did exactly the thing that you would want a good leader to do. He went to the crash site. He actually helped carry stretchers of wounded <clears throat> personnel at the Pentagon. It was exactly the wrong thing for him to do as the Secretary of Defense and as a member of the National Command Authority, this group that uh, oversees the Nuclear uh, Launch Authority. Because for the 90 minutes right after that attack, Donald Rumsfeld was almost entirely incommunicado. Uh, and, and his staff uh, and deputies are being evacuated to Raven Rock or are being evacuated to other facilities, and no one could find, uh, during that sort of critical first hour, it was nearly impossible to reach the President of the United States or the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. And this prompts massive financial effort to fix some of these problems. So there's after-action reviews and things like that. So take us forward to today. Do you think it, it'll work better if 9-11 if were to happen again today, God forbid, would the system perform better? Do you think they have learned, or, or are, would you argue that these are unsolvable human problems? Well, so a version would work better today. I'm not sure we as Americans would be happy with what that version looks like. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the big changes after 9-11 is that these facilities, Raven Rock, Mount Weather, NORAD, uh, are staffed all of the time, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, and so there would be someone who survived. Um, we may not be happy with what that government ends up looking like, uh, but you know this whole system still exists today. Um, the president has these four airborne command posts known as the president's doomsday planes, the E-4B night watch planes, which are these converted 747s that uh, would serve as an airborne command post for the president in the event of a national emergency. Uh, they're based at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. They have uh, stood 15-minute alert uh, for almost 40 years now, which means that they would be ready to launch in just 15 minutes. So while we are sitting here right now talking, there is one of these planes sitting on the tarmac on the runway at Offutt. Its engines are on, it is fully staffed, and it would be able to launch in 12 to 15 minutes and rendezvous with the President of the United States wherever he, he, uh, he was. 
uh, and then would spend three days flying above the country where the president could lead nuclear war before, um, before he had to land and sort of survey what was left of the country. So this raises the, the question which really comes after your book, so I'll ask you if you're going to write the next chapter, uh, the Trump chapter. How, how do you think these systems would work uh, with our current administration? In almost exactly the same way that they would have worked with any previous administration. Um, and as I mentioned, like part of what we forget is that this apparatus is around the president all of the time. Um, you know, and we sort of forget about it until something like what happened in January, where you have uh, where you had a party goer at Mar-a-Lago post a selfie with the military aide carrying the football, the nuclear briefcase. Uh, but this is all. The system is all in place today, um, and one of the things that uh, you know has been receiving some attention over uh, the last couple of months is the recognition that we have spent 70 years stripping away every check and balance uh, from the president's ability to launch nuclear war. That the entire system is rigged to respond instantly to a presidential launch order um, and that we have removed any secondary check or balance or verification or authentication uh, to ensure that the nation's nuclear arsenal is able to respond as quickly as possible to an incoming threat. So let me push back on that uh, just a little bit because it's true that they they want the system to be able to respond more quickly, but as you explain in the book, if if the balloon were to go up or if President Trump were to open that football, there wouldn't be a button that he pushes that would cause the missiles to launch. There, he would. There are codes of options mm -hmm. or options with codes associated with them. He would transmit this through a human chain of command. Mm -hmm. And so there would be humans in the chain of command who would be hearing these orders and who have been trained to obey those orders. But if it were to happen without cause, uh, then the expectation is, well, they might ask the question, why are we doing this? And get the answer. And, and uh, Schlesinger, for instance, I don't want to leave them on this dire note because they'll <laughs> just be depressed. Uh, so you got to tell how Schlesinger dealt with this issue with Nixon. Yeah. So. Uh, you, you are right that there are humans all the way down the chain uh, to the person actually turning the keys in the missile silo. Um, but there is no second person who has to okay or agree with a presidential launch command. There is- For those orders to be deemed authentic. To, uh, to be deemed authentic. Right. That, the, that the entirety of the authentication system is focused on ensuring that the president is the president. Mm -hmm. um, and so what would happen is the military aide would come up, he would open up that football. Uh, as you say, there's no like magic red phone or uh, big red button. Um, we, we do know actually that President Trump does have a big red button on his desk, uh, but it actually orders Diet Coke. Yes. Um, with the, this is true. Uh, there's a red button that when he hits it, a Navy steward brings in Diet Coke. Um, uh, but the scares the, the hell out of the guys in the room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> um, but uh, 
the, the nuclear football is basically just binders of uh, nuclear launch options. Um, one military aide referred to it as basically the Denny's menu of nuclear war. Like you just look at it and you sort of pick a little bit of this column, a little bit of that column, maybe a side of this, and like that's the nuclear war that you order. Um, and then the president carries uh, um, this sealed authentication card that's known as the biscuit that is uh, a, a code uh, developed and sealed by the NSA that he would sort of crack open and read off the code that declares that he is the president of the United States. And then the, uh, uh, the person on the other end of the phone at Raven Rock or the Pentagon or uh, the Airborne Command Post would have the same code. And they would say, you know, the president of the United States should give you this code. Um, and, and that's true sort of all the way down the line of succession. So if, uh, you know, there's uh, a, if something happens and, uh, you know, it's the Secretary of Agriculture uh, reading off the code, uh, you know, he would crack open the Secretary of Agriculture's biscuit and there would be a, a corresponding code at the Pentagon that would say, yes, that is the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, but the story that you were mentioning, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, I keep digressing so far from your questions, um, is during the final days of the Nixon presidency, um, for the first and we believe only time that this has ever happened, James Schlesinger, who was the Secretary of Defense, sent out a message to the Pentagon in the final days of the Nixon presidency saying that presidential launch orders should be disregarded unless they were verified by the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense. Unless they came through the chain of command. Yes. Right. Um, that, so the president couldn't call up somebody in the middle of the night and say, this yeah. is the president, go do something. Because in, the, in those final chain. days, Nixon yes. was drinking heavily. He was depressed, had actually threatened a group of congressmen uh, that he might just start nuclear war for no reason. And Schlesinger was concerned. Uh, and, and so actually, uh, and again, this is the only time that we ever know that this has happened. Uh, the presidential football actually didn't travel with Nixon uh, in the final hours of his presidency. When he got aboard that helicopter, threw up the Vs, went to Andrews Air Force Base, and flew back across the country, he still had hours left in his presidency at that point. And the nuclear football never went aboard Air Force One. Uh, he thought it did. He thought it, it did. Yes. He, he thought it did. He had told the press that it was going to. Uh, and his aides uh, pulled the football from him and left it with Gerald Ford. Well, speaking of drinking heavily, you probably have driven some of the people here in the room to go drink heavily. <laughs> so it's only fair that I give them a chance to ask you some questions. I could go on for another mm -hmm. hour. This is fascinating. We'll begin here. I was just curious, are these all these bunkers fully staffed? And what's the level of staffing associated with the effort currently? Some sense of what the budget is if you have, I haven't read the book yet. So, so we, don't, we don't really know how much money this all costs. Um, I, and I say that, and I don't think the government knows how much this costs. I think these are sort of spread across so many different budgets, classified uh, black budgets, spread across so many different departments and agencies. I think in round numbers, it costs about $2 billion a year, based on the best estimate that I'm able to put together, um, which doesn't, doesn't account for the infrastructure costs. 
Um, these facilities have been greatly expanded and updated since 9-11. Uh, Raven Rock has had hundreds of thousands of square feet of office space added to it. Um, actually, like right now, literally, they are upgrading in Waynesboro the CenturyLink uh, communications cables into Raven Rock. Um, uh, you know, big multi-million dollar project. Um, on a normal basis, these facilities are staffed with a few hundred personnel. Um, they would each hold in an emergency uh, several thousand. Um, I think in round numbers, we're probably talking about 10,000 people nationwide who would be part of these plans in the event of uh, you know, a catastrophic attack. Because part of this, and we, ha we haven't sort of gotten too deep into this, is there's a role for all of the federal government in the event mm -hmm. of, of one of these. Um, and, and so every federal agency sort of has its post-apocalypse analog. Um, so the post office through the Cold War was going to be the agency that was in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive in the United States, because the post office knows where people live. And, and can so, reach everybody in one day. Uh, yes. Right. And so you would show up in the refugee camps. You would be handed Form 810, which was this little postcard that had been pre-printed you know, in millions of quantities. And it would, you would fill out your name. You would fill out sort of what family members uh, had made it to the refugee camp with you. Uh, and you would address it to another family member that you were trying to... Uh, communicate with, and then the post office would sort of collect all of these and sort them. There was no postage necessary <laughs> on the uh, the postcards from the refugee camps. Um, uh, you know, the Department of Agriculture was in charge of rations, food, these like very careful calculations, not just about the survival wafers, but how many wildlife, how much wildlife would survive nuclear war, and so how many days of uh, household pets we would be able to eat uh, in the event of nuclear war. Um, the National Park Service was going to be the agency that was running the refugee camps because the expectation was that national parkland would be largely untouched. Uh, and so you would flee out of your devastated urban centers into you know, Red Rocks and Yosemite and all of these beautiful wildernesses where the refugee camps and tent cities would be set up. Um, and, and these plans sort of still exist in modified form today. So the post office is no longer has responsibility for registering the dead in the event of a nuclear attack. But it is uh, for, and, and I, I know we have some pandemic people in the room, uh, it is the agency that is in charge of distributing medical countermeasures in the event of a public health pandemic uh, or biological or chemical attack in the United States. Um, so the post office would shut down, uh, and two days later, uh, post men and post women would go out with two local law enforcement officers uh, and you know, distribute on their normal postal delivery routes the medical countermeasures or vaccines um, necessary to avert uh, you know, whatever. So the next time you're like thinking about calculating your holiday tip for your postman, like definitely put some thought into that because you want to be the first house on your block to get the Ebola virus or Ebola vaccine. Ma'am, right here. So are you saying that right now as we speak at five to four, uh, over the mountain in NORAD, there is an entire city operating for 
no particular reason at this moment as if it was an operating city. Yep. Like right this minute. Yep. So they're, uh, you know, they're in, in NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain. There is uh, someone running the this, this Subway fast food franchise dining center, uh, you know, making $5 footlongs for the hundreds of the personnel. people who are th working there. The, yeah, they're the, working there. The people who are sort of monitoring these systems and making sure uh, that it, it, if they actually had to seal up the mountain in the next hour, uh, that everyone that you would need to run nuclear war would already be inside the mountain. And in fairness uh, to these plans, there was a deeper purpose to these plans. The, the rationale behind them was we must convince the Soviets that there is no scenario in which they could decapitate us and prevent the United States from responding. Because if they had such a scenario that was plausible to them, they would have a sore temptation to launch that strike uh, and decapitate us and thus uh, end the problem once and for all. So the idea was that no matter how bad the scenario, how dire, we still could respond. And then that would buy us deterrence from the Soviets because they would not attack. And that, so there is a purpose. And you could say, well, it worked. We made it through the Cold War without a, a war, but at great cost, and would it ever have worked? Yeah. And I, I think sort of part of what's also interesting about that is how quickly this question of how you preserve America becomes this very existential question of what is America? Uh, and this was sort of something that planners uh, thought through. You know, Are you trying to preserve the presidency? Are you trying to preserve the three branches of government? And so part of this was there was an entire effort during the Cold War to preserve the historical totems that have bound us together as Americans generation after generation. And so at the National Archives, uh, they decided you know, they would save the Declaration of Independence before they saved the Constitution. Uh, at the National Gallery, you know, they rank ordered the paintings inside the National Gallery so that if they could only grab one painting, they knew which one it was. Uh, at the Library of Congress, they decided they would save Lincoln's Gettysburg Address before they saved George Washington's military commission. And probably one of my favorite details in the entire book is that in Philadelphia, through the Cold War, there was a specially trained team of park rangers whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell uh, in the event of a Soviet threat. Um, and I just sort of love the idea of these guys showing up and being like, no, no, I swear, the crack was there before we evacuated it. I'm urging you to join me in thanking Garrett for writing a great book and leading a great conversation. Thank you, sir. Good job. Garrett Graff wrote the book Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Peter Fever is the director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy. He's also an author and member of the Aspen Strategy Group that focuses on finding solutions to foreign policy challenges. Our featured discussion was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.